Support for this WXAV podcast is being provided by Bookies, new and used books. Located at 10324 Southwestern Avenue in Chicago, Bookies specializes in new and used books. Their selection includes new releases, bestsellers, and books that are out of print. For more information, please visit their website at bookieschicago.com. You can also find them on Facebook by searching Bookies Chicago or call them at 773-239-1110. Hello and welcome to A Great Woman and Her Time, a WXAV 88.3 FM series that examines the extraordinary life of a 19th century Irish woman. And now your host, Graham Peck. Hello, my name is Graham Peck, and I am a professor of history at St. Xavier University in Chicago, where I have taught since 2002. I have published a book and produced a film on the origins of the Civil War, and you can learn more about my career by visiting my website, civilwarprof.com. But if you love to listen to history, then stay strapped into your earbuds, because we are going to take another journey into the past. On the 12th of December, 1839, eight years to the day after Catherine Macaulay became the first woman to take vows as a Sister of Mercy, the founding of the first Mercy convent in England brought an English aristocrat into the order, Lady Barbara Eyre, daughter of the Earl of Newburgh. Her entry meant that the ceremony was remarkably ostentatious. According to the historian Mary Sullivan, carriages clogged the streets, and members of the Catholic and Protestant nobility were seated in the front pews of the church, into which were crowded more than 4,000 people. Lady Eyre did not disappoint them, wearing, according to Catherine Macaulay's account, a dress worth 100 guineas, a white satin petticoat, covered with white crepe richly embroidered in gold down the middle and at the bottom, with a satin body and train of violet hue, and the train from the waist three yards long. Meanwhile, Lady Eyre dressed her hair with lace, feathers, and diamonds. She would receive in return that day the simple mercy habit, a long black pleated dress with white linen covering the shoulders and chest and a white cap worn beneath a long black veil. Lady Eyre's first year as a novice, learning the demands of poverty, chastity, and obedience, must have been an interesting one. As for the diamonds, they went to the poor. We learned in the fourth episode of this series on Catherine Macaulay, founder of the Sisters of Mercy, that the infant order responded to the cholera outbreak in Dublin, Ireland, in the summer of 1832, by volunteering to nurse sick patients. Doing so was extremely risky because the disease was highly communicable, and 30% of the people who became infected later died. It is fascinating to consider, therefore, that the sisters generally were from the upper classes of Irish society. Entering the order, 
was difficult if they were not able to fund the expenses they would incur over a lifetime of serving the poor. Much as a wealthy woman would bring a dowry to a husband upon marriage, so too would an aspiring sister bring a dowry to her religious order when professing vows. Hence our question for today. Why would wealthy women make the extraordinary choice to take lifetime vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience in order to serve the poor? Now, I could attempt to answer that question myself, but the fact is that those women had to answer that same question before entering the order. And their answer was that they perceived the hand of God to so direct them. God certainly did not make it easy. The life of a Mercy Sister was arduous. Some sense of this can be gleaned from their day-to-day lives. The daily schedule, or what was called the herarium, began at 5.30 a.m. in the morning and went till 10 p.m. at night. In between, the sisters performed about six hours of the works of mercy, another six hours in religious instruction or devotion, and divided the remaining four hours of the day between meals and recreation. The works of mercy were often taxing. For instance, the handful of teaching sisters worked with about 500 rambunctious students, and visitation to the sick required the sisters to walk in all kinds of weather to the least habitable and most disease-ridden parts of Dublin. Aware of the dangers of such visitations, one of Dublin's most eminent physicians urged Catherine in 1832 to terminate the visits, contending for their, quote, real unwholesomeness. Catherine responded that the fresh air was good for the sisters, even though, in truth, as the sisters later recalled, there was little fresh air in the city's worst slums in an era before modern sanitation. Other works of mercy were likewise demanding. The neighborhood begging Sister Anne O'Grady instituted to raise money and solicit gifts in kind proved exhausting, requiring sisters to go door to door for hours at a time in order to acquire the resources needed by the order. Similarly, during the cholera epidemic, when the sisters abandoned their regular schedule in order to manage the hospital's nurses, Catherine remembered, quote, the sisters returning at past 9 p.m., loosening their clothes on the stairs and stopping overcome with sleep. The vows of poverty and obedience intensified this life of sacrifice. The very first Sister of Mercy to die, Caroline Murphy, did so in no small part because of her extreme humility. According to one of the early sisters, Caroline, quote, practiced an entire obedience to all and on all occasions, 
with profound humility, she employed herself in the most abject offices, in such manner that it was not till after her death that many of her humiliations were discovered. She did indeed perform the most laborious and unpleasant tasks, such as scrubbing the floor of the student's bathroom. When she contracted tuberculosis, she deliberately hid the symptoms until it was too late for treatment, and, according to other sisters, quote, died like a saint, continuing to evince her joyful resignation to the divine will. Caroline Murphy was not alone in extreme devotion. During the year Catherine Macaulay lived with the Presentation Sisters, a number of Sisters of Mercy began fasting, wearing haircloth, or remaining in prayer deep into the night. Catherine prohibited these practices once she learned of them, but there is little doubt that the deaths of Caroline Murphy, Anne O'Grady, and Elizabeth Harley resulted at least in part from the overly zealous practice of what the Church called mortification. Catherine herself was hardly immune from the austerities that sprang from deep religiosity. Early in her ministry, she sometimes rose from bed at 4 o'clock a.m. to recite prayers and to read from the Sinner's Guide, and she practiced poverty in almost every way. According to the early records of the order, on one occasion, quote, seeing a sister take a little more milk in her tea than ordinary, she said that the sisters should remember that they had not come to a house of plenty, but to the state of strict poverty. She held to this doctrine herself, typically eating last and least. These were remarkable changes for women who had generally lived privileged lives. Catherine herself, of course, had lived in poverty after being orphaned, frequently eating nothing all day before consuming a small meal of bread at night. But even she had enjoyed considerable luxury for many years once brought into the Callahan family. For women such as Catherine, it was not always an obvious choice to join the order. One woman who was expected to enter arrived at Dublin, but before entering the House of Mercy, decided to consult with a distinguished surgeon who, quote, condemned the step. So she married a very rich old man. Yet the sister's status as higher class only intensified public affection for them they received admiration and deference simultaneously. This was especially evident in a speech by Daniel O'Connell, the great Irish politician who labored to improve the lives of Irish Catholics. In 1840, he lifted up the cause of Ireland with reference to the glories of the Sisters of Mercy. Quote, No country on the face of the earth is like Ireland. Look at the fairest portion of creation, possessing all the virtues that adorn and endear life, forsaking their homes, their family, 
and their friends. Look at the Sisters of Mercy, wrapped in coarse black coats. They are seen gliding along, persons apparently poor. But a slight glance at the foot shows the educated lady. They are hastening to the lone couch of some sick fellow creature, fast sinking into the grave. They come with consolation and hope, and bring down with their prayers the blessing of God on the dying sinner, on themselves, and on their country. Oh, such is too good to be oppressed. After this last line, the newspaper report indicates great cheering. But the sisters' motives were entirely unrelated to O'Connell's. Indeed, the order spread so far beyond Ireland after Catherine's death because the sisters had never been serving Ireland. They had always been serving God. This motive is evident in the illuminating letter of Jane Frances Gibson to Catherine Macaulay in March of 1841. A 22-year-old Englishwoman, Gibson wrote that she had, quote, long wished to be admitted as one among your community. Yet she could not easily commit herself to the order because she loved both her home and her parents, and they utterly opposed the prospect of losing their only daughter. Nevertheless, she eventually persuaded them and expressed to Macaulay her, quote, strong desire to dedicate myself to the service of God. From a conviction, it is in that state I shall meet with the most abundant means for working out my eternal salvation. She knew that the path would be hard because she had habits of idleness and willfulness. Yet she believed in the grace of God and desired to become what she called a virtuous spouse of Christ. In this last phrase was the fundamental reason that wealthy women took up the cross to serve the poor as sisters of mercy. In doing so, they followed Christ. These brides of Christ, however, were surprisingly independent women. As their work at the cholera hospital demonstrated in 1832, they most effectively served the poor by exercising leadership. Yet it was not easy for Catholic women in early 19th century Ireland to exercise leadership. For the Sisters of Mercy, it would require careful navigation through the Catholic Church, a church always run entirely by men. On the docket for our next episode is the engaging tale of how they did it. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to WXAV's A Great Woman and Her Time, a program created, researched, written, and narrated by Graham Peck. Engineering and editing by Peter Creighton. For more information on the series, 
please visit Graham Peck's website, civilwarprof.com.